Before we start, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. It's a huge help getting the word out. When a coach told me, you know why you fail, right? You know why we lost. And I was like, no, why? And he's like, well, we lost so we can learn. I was like, oh, boom. So no more failure is not in my dictionary anymore. Like you don't hear me and the team talk about failure. The only way you fail is if you do not try. So if there was anything that was instilled in me was like that, the only way you fail is if you do not try. Welcome to Persistence 360. I am Mark Malkoff. This week, TV host Mario Armstrong discusses overcoming obstacles, becoming a correspondent on the Today Show, and hosting his own Emmy award-winning digital series. Mario Armstrong, thanks for talking with us. Mark, it's a pleasure to be on, man. Really excited about this. Yeah, I have so many questions for you. I want to start growing up. You grew up in Maryland, and your dad was a music promoter. You know, I grew up in Baltimore, Maryland, and dad was like this image of like inspiring to pursue your passion. Seeing a guy that had a dream of, I want to create the Motown for Baltimore. And he's the underdog, but him and his business partner got together, Armstrong and Donaldson, they created this company. And I remember them having like these two music acts. I remember going to a studio and it'd be a group of guys and there'd be drums and congos and I'd play on stuff and there'd be like a pool table and I'd drink coffee and I'd come back and my mom would be like why is Mario so just like going nuts he's like I don't know I was in the studio with the group and I was like I drank coffee but it was really watching him work and seeing what it was like at a very young age not really understanding oh this is what it is like to pursue a dream oh he doesn't just go to a regular job he created this thing and this came out of nothing with just ideas and then to see that unfold was really telling and I think that's where part of my, I guess, um, substance as well as resiliency comes from because it wasn't always gravy. Your, your dad's name was, is Rod? Yeah, yeah. Rod is his, is his name. And uh, Roderick is like is Roderick Henry Armstrong is his full name. And then, you know, to also watch my mom, Gloria, support, not just support them from like, I'm going to take care of the kids, make sure they get good education. And, and she was a, she's a teacher. So she was going to make sure like we cross T's and dot I's. She, she'll still help me today. Like your grammar usage was wrong. And, and like, how did you, how do you get that wrong? So she still hits me, but to see her support, like a dream of someone else's to then have to like be there, not only for him, but for us. And so watching that whole balance was a lot when I think about it. What was it like when your father went bankrupt? You know, it, we didn't, as kids, I, I knew what a pink slipped on, on an apartment door. I was able to, I was old enough to read. I knew what that was. I had to be like maybe 12, uh, somewhere around that age. So I understood like, oh, this isn't good. I can read eviction notice. Like I understand like what that meant, but I didn't understand the full thing of what he had to do to protect his family and protect um, any asset that he had, which wasn't really anything, but, you know, we had two cars. So to see him go through that, because what happened was like all of a sudden, like the, the music thing stops and you're like, what happened to the music business? Cause now he's like working in insurance. I'm like, how did that whole switch kind of happen? So then you learn like, Oh, well the company went bankrupt and there's why we had to do it. And you're like, wow, like that dream is just gone. But at the same time, your dad bounces back. He's a resilient man. How, how does he bounce back? That's the most incredible piece. Like the bankruptcy 
it's almost a blessing in a weird way. I'm sure he wouldn't feel that way uh, because, you know, his credit was dinged for seven years. And I do remember him saying, you know, fighting for credit and fighting for um, trying to better our living standards and to try to move us out of apartments and get us into better places and not have peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and be able to really provide. And he was always out there trying to do as much as he could. I, I just think that seeing him go through that and then watching him plan Here's, how, here's what my next step is going to be. Here's what my new goal is. I'm, I'm going to get the family a house. We're going to have a pool. We're going to do this. And we would start riding with him. Literally, this guy's living in an apartment. My brother and I are sharing a bedroom, and he's looking at newspapers for Sunday ads. We get in a car, and we're driving to different places that we cannot afford, but that he's just constantly showing us for him as well as uh, we're just in the ride. So we're like, oh, wow, we're going to get a house like that. And he's like, yeah, we're going to work on something like that. And so you're just like, you know, you don't understand how money is made. You don't understand all these things at that age, but you are impressionable enough to know that this guy had a vision. And now looking back at that, I'm like, he had that vision when he was flat broke. How long did it take him to get the money where, where that could happen? How long did it take him to get back on his feet where he could do that, if, if ever? It's a great story. He eventually gets there, but here's the thing. He had to do a pit stop. And many times in life, we have these visualizations of where we want to go, um, where we would like to be. And a lot of times there's a great – there's a this someone told me recently it's like um, life happens to you along the way of what you're going after. And so for him, life was happening. He had to make a choice. He couldn't afford what he really wanted to do. So we had to make a pit stop. He wanted to get out of the apartment. He wanted to get out of that neighborhood and move us into a house. He hated that house. I can't tell you, Mark, how much I didn't know all of this until like maybe the last few years of living there that he hated living in this house. And what was worst is he would go on these appointments and everyone knew him from either the record promotion business and all this stuff. And they'd be like, Rod, what happened? And now you're doing insurance. But he's going to people managing their insurance and they live three times better than him. So the debilitating effect of I went after a dream didn't happen, went bankrupt, had to get this house I really don't want. I guess he was fortunate to at least get that pit stop. But And every day I'm going to these you know, massive homes with these people and I'm helping them better plan for their retirement insurance and then I got to come back to this thing. So it really was just kind of rough to kind of see that. Now, in retrospect, I've had this conversation with him and I was like, that's where the resilience comes from. How old are you when you have this vision, this dream that you want to go into television and radio? Very young. I knew, like, the TV caught my attention as a young kid. And a lot of people say, oh, well, that's how you got into technology. And part of it's true because that the radio and the TV interested me in a way. I wanted to understand how it worked, but I really wanted to understand, like, who are those people that are on the screen? How do they do what they do? So I think at a very young age, I knew that there was something about that medium and that that role I wanted to play. Uh, I think it probably became more clear to me in probably high school age range where I really realized like, yeah, I want to do this TV thing. 
At what point and how do you get your first radio gig? And I'm sure a lot of people think it's going to be so glamorous. You get your own radio show. Can you, can you set this all up? How old were you? How it came about? And, and, and the details? Oh, this is really great that you're asking this because that's exactly what you'd expect. First off, my college experience didn't go the way it was supposed to. Remember I mentioned life happens to you along the way? Started off great. I always was bad in school, in high school, bad grades. Go to college for communications. This is important. I go to college for communications, start off my first semester, everything's going. This is the first time, believe it or not, I got a B average. I call home, mom is going ballistic. She's like, oh my God, this is great. My son's got a B average. He's in college. He's doing his communications thing. The next semester after that, some off-campus thug is targeting me because he thinks that I'm like hitting on one of my classmates. It's in English. I didn't know how big of an off-campus thug this guy was until people started telling me he's really like after you. And I'm like, I'm on campus at West Virginia State College, away, six hours away from where I live, just going to college. I don't, I'm, the girl's in my class, but I'm not doing anything with her. And his insecurities, whatever, and all this stuff. It got to the point where there was gun violence. Literally, I'm being shot at on a campus six out. This is like, this is the story of my life. It's so important because I think people think that so many things are, you plan so effectively, you find your moment. I'm in my lane. I'm pure happiness. I'm getting a B average, never had it in communicate. I'm cutting tape on reel to reel. I'm learning how to edit like for radio and TV. And then all of a sudden, you know, a semester later, I'm literally being shot at and being called to say, you're leaving tomorrow to come home. From that point forward, college never worked for me. I never found, I went to four different colleges, never could stay at one, right? So it's just, it's important for me to bring this up because a lot of times your journey will give you the lessons that you need when you don't know you need them. And for me to answer your question, I didn't go the normal route. So I didn't get to go to school and then go to a small market, start there, get exposure, try to move to a bigger market, which is what you do in radio and TV. And what I had to do is actually buy my own airtime. Wait a minute. So your first radio show, people are listening and you're, you're losing money and you actually had to buy the time, the airtime? So my wife and I get married and I'm in my 20s. And I um, pull out this newspaper and the ad reads, host your own radio show, WBIS AM 1190. And I'm like, okay. I was like, honey, when we get back from this honeymoon, like I'm going to host my radio show. And she's looking at me like, keep your job. We just got married. Like this is all still new and happening really fast because I kind of like suckered her into marrying me really quick because she was just the greatest thing I ever met. So I was like, you got to marry me. And she didn't understand that. And we get married. And so she's like, wait, this is all like happening. So we get back and I do call the station and they're like, yeah, we'd love to have a tech show because that's what my pitch was. It's like, I want to talk about computers and technology because it was brand new. And this is like Windows 95, 98. It's like people like, what is email and what's an attachment and all this stuff where when it was cool send jokes. But I had to end up buying my airtime. They go, oh, great idea. It's going to cost you a thousand bucks to host a half hour every Thursday. And I was like, okay, but if I go and find the sponsor, can I do that? And they're like, yeah. So then I get on the phone. I like start calling sponsors. I put together brochureware. I'm like in Kinko's at the time making these brochures. I got these business cards. I'm like spelling out Tech Talk was the name of the show. And I sold it to uh, a computer training company and ended up getting my first show. So you get your first radio show. How old are you when you're doing all these things? And how did you know to go about that to look for a sponsor? This is a great question. So I was 28. 
when I did this. I think it's because, again, watching my dad, there's a, a quote that I've come up with that I said, don't let the options define your objectives. And so the idea with that is, let's say you're looking for a job. Don't just let the recruiter's options or the options that are online define your objective. Is there a company you really want to work for? Have you approached them? Have you researched them? Have you talked to someone that works there? So how, how can you find other avenues to accomplish your objectives? Have you ever saw a house or an apartment you wanted and just say, you know, I know it's not for sale, but I would love to buy this property. You don't know what that, well, the person might say, well, how much? <laughs> and you'd be like, and they'd be like, well, I might want to really consider that. Just because it's not listed doesn't mean it couldn't be possible. So I think about the same way with this whole radio show thing was like, okay, wait, if I can sell the time, I can make this work. I can, I can pull back on watching how my dad would like not let the options define his objectives. And then I also did have a, a short stint at a cable TV job where I sold uh, ad sales for local uh, small businesses to have their ads on like ESPN or TNT. And so I had a little bit of experience on how to sell, but I wasn't trained. I just knew how to talk to people and I knew how to be passionate about what it was I was trying to solve. And I cared about how could I make something work for you that could help me. So you have your own radio show that's credibility. You also did some work with the, with the TV station. What is your day job? Is that when you were with the mayor of Baltimore? No, so this is before that. So here's the funny part about this story. So the, the radio station is in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm working in an area called Linthicum. Linthicum is near BWI by the airport. It's about a 20-minute drive from my job to the radio station. Here's the thing. My show, the only time I could get was 1230 Thursday afternoons. So I'm at work. I'm doing help desk stuff at work. I'm literally working a nine to five. And then I would grab my lunch and I would kind of like duck out the back door to not be seen to like leave my lunch break a little bit early. And then I would fly down the road to get to the radio station, eating the lunch in the car, literally show up. I don't have a producer. I don't have any. I got everything in a yellow manila envelope. I'm like pulling up the stuff and it's like I make it within six minutes to start the show. I do the show, half hour's up. I got to get back in the car and boogie back to work before anyone sees, like, where's Mario been? And it never <laughs> really worked. But it never dawned on me that they might actually hear me on the radio while, <laughs> while everyone's else at lunch break. <laughs> they might actually hear me. Like, oh, that's where the hell he's been. <laughs> but that was, that was the hustle. That was, that was how determined I was to try to figure it out. Like, that I was willing to kind of put a little bit of the risk of the day job on the line for this passion because that was the only only way that I could get it jump started. So no, this was way before uh, the mayor's job came, uh, like two other jobs later. In 2007, you and your wife, Nicole, start working on a business idea. What was that? Yeah, this is a great question because in 2007, we really didn't have a full idea as to what this business idea was. And that's the thing. A lot of people have ideas, but they don't move on them because they're like, oh, well, I don't have it fully perfect. I don't have it fully baked. Well, guess what? We didn't either. We didn't have it fully baked. And I think that's really great for people to kind of hear because it sheds light on the process. Sometimes you just have to go with your gut. You have to go with faith. Now, I will say this. At the time, we didn't know what it was going to be, but we knew that I was doing a lot of a side hustle. So for like seven years, I was working a full 
full-time job and doing a side hustle. What I mean by that, it was like a combination of doing a bunch of media, trying to build up my skill set, build up my brand, and build up my expertise in talking to the in the media. And so I was doing this for like seven years. I would do this crazy combination. I'd get up at like 4 a.m. and be on morning news, um, but also do a radio show and also had like a radio segment. All of this stuff, by the way, was being done for free while I was working a full-time job. But we knew at the time, like, okay, he loves media. He loves teaching people. And at the time, I was teaching people how you can use technology to live a more fulfilling life or how you could use technology to pursue your passion. And so that was my thing. Like, how do I teach people how to use tech in a way that's going to make them have a better life? And so at that time, we were like, all right, I don't really know what the idea is. But we knew this. Nicole had ended up seeing me um, basically interview with Stedman Graham. And she was like, I got it. We're going to make a talk show based off of the Oprah, old Oprah model. Like, think Phil Donahue, think old model. We're going to make a talk show based off of that. And that's where the idea started to hatch. Like, she really started to see the picture of building a program or programs that would inspire people for the next generation. I just want to set this up. Four bank accounts that you have are negative. You've maxed out your credit cards. It's, it's that bad. Your, your mortgage, you don't know how month to month how you're going to get the money. That was such a tough period. And I know so many other people have gone through tough periods. And I'm certainly not trying to say my period, our, our moment was tougher than others. Everybody has their own journey. But in our life, our quality of life was down. It was done. I mean, my mother-in-law is buying our groceries. That's when it was just hitting me like, damn, I'm the, I'm the husband. I'm supposed, quote unquote, the provider. I have a child. I told my wife to leave her job to come and follow me on this journey. And now I'm not holding up my end of the bargain. Like, I'm sorry. It's just, I'm trying to work on not getting so emotional about this shit all the time. I would. I mean, it's 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 real. I mean, on. I mean, I, whenever I have to go there, um, it it seems like it it happened five minutes ago, and I can tell that that um, how how hard it m- must have been to to see you like this. It's um. It's just when you believe in something so much, and it it it, it doesn't seem like it's gonna happen. And you're like, I'm a good person. You know, you start looking at like, what are the qualities that would guarantee me? Oh, I treat other humans well. I abide by the Ten Commandments. Like, I'm a good person. Like, this shouldn't be happening. You try to find something to latch on to to make you feel like it's not me. So what is the problem? And I just remember, you know, I remember one time I talk about this a little bit. Not too much, so you're getting it kind of new as well. But I remember one time, it was like 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and I was like, hey, I'm going to go. I got to go out. And I didn't even tell her where. I think I said I'm going to go to Starbucks. She knew we didn't have Starbucks money. But I go into the Starbucks parking lot, and I'm literally just crying. I'm just bawling in the car. And I think the the thoughts that are coming through, and I I know to watch the inner critic, and I know what to kind of look out for, and I've trained myself to try to watch for these things. And um, it, it was just so much because I felt like I was the one that asked everyone, including my son, 
Like, we didn't just do this around him. We would, like, talk to Christopher and let him know, like, here's what mom and dad are working on. Here's our vision board, you know, so that he would understand and participate in any way he could. So I just felt like I am letting everybody down. I'm calling my brother, my younger brother. He doesn't even have, he doesn't have the money. I'm asking him for money. Do your friends know that you're going through this? Do they help you at all? Um, no. Tight family knew. And it wasn't that I was, like, trying to keep it away from friends. I mean, I would say, like, maybe one or two close friends knew that I was struggling. How much they knew I was struggling, I don't, I don't know if they knew how much I was struggling. Take me through your dealings with AOL. <laughs> AOL was a great and uh, tough moment all at the same time. So what happened was, as this goes back a little bit, so around May 2007 or so, I got laid off, and we decided... Um, that that was kind of like our our sign sign, you know, to really like launch this idea and make it serious and take it full time. And we had been working on this deal with AOL for about a year up until that point, doing smaller projects with them. The whole idea was that we were going to build this massive video blog that was really going to humanize the people behind AOL. The whole idea was people are working on things like Instant Messenger and AOL Mail and all of this stuff. And big tech companies at the time were targets for people that hated their services. They were just easy for you to complain about AOL or any other company. And I was like, you know, the problem is people that use your services don't know the people that are making the products. And it would be cool if we could bring a camera into what people don't get to see. And so there was all this talk about, oh, I don't know if we like that. That might be too much transparency. But eventually, I got to give AOL credit. Eventually, they were like, this is a great idea. Let's show people who actually work on these products what their lives are like. And maybe by doing that, people would maybe even like AOL a little bit more. I couldn't control what the outcome was going to be. All I could control was I thought this was a good idea to bring more transparency to the process. I want to mention the deal with AOL was for $250,000. At this point, you really need the money. And I mean, I'm, yeah, I'm stumbling over my words because there was no other plan. There, I mean, Nicole had been doing some consulting on the side, and that's how we were getting some cash flow coming in. So she was keeping us afloat. I was trying to scraggle for little deals here and there, but we were barely, like, it was just really rough and painful. And to Nicole's credit, she was really out there trying to consult her tail off to try to bring something in because we have our son Christopher that we're raising. So, yeah, this $250,000 deal is everything. Like, this is going to jumpstart the company. We're going to have a lavish party to kick it off. Like, everything's going to be great. And and, you know, it just uh, it's just one of those things. It's really hard for me to talk about it because it's just one of those things that even though I know you shouldn't put all your eggs in one basket it, because you have to diversify yourself, the idea was that this thing was going to really do something big for us. And it ended up not happening. Like in the 12th hour, we we signed our for, uh, end of the contract, but they didn't sign theirs yet. And then it just went to crickets. What's the process of that? So you have your point person, and you, you have the contract, you sign it. How do you find out it's not going through, and how do you and Nicole react to that in, in the moment, and what was it like days after? Um, I mean, reacting to that in the moment was heart-wrenching. It was gut-wrenching. It was, it, you felt like the bottom was pulled out of you. You felt like you were completely done and you didn't know what this all meant. 
you've worked so hard, you put in a lot of time and effort, and then the deal didn't happen because a, a new CEO came in town and they said, hey, any contracts that aren't already done aren't going to be approved at this point. And so there was n- even the people that were inside of AOL that were advocating for us couldn't do anything. Like it was done. And at that moment, it really clicked for us that we're on our own. We, 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 we had no other option here other than to figure out what to do and how to make this work. So for days, it was just this pit in your stomach, just pain. You were just bewildered. You, you were, we were literally like lost human beings just trying to understand and, and, and just give ourselves some time to let this cloud, this fog, like dissipate, just, just go away. And you didn't know what to do and you didn't know how to do it. You just knew like there has to be something better on the other side of this. Why did the AOL deal not happen? Was it a specific person? Was it a department? You, you never know with these things, but did you ever find out what it exactly was? Yeah. The thing was, a new CEO came in town. Uh, I think it was Michael Armstrong. I think that was his name. No relation. <laughs> How crazy is that, right? No relation. Um, and all we know from the guy, David, he said, look, I've known about this for a couple of days, couldn't muster up the energy to tell you guys or the confidence or whatever it was at the time. Um, cause he knew how hard this was probably going to hit us. And he was like, they put a freeze on all contracts. So I guess what happened is the CEO came in and was trying to write the ship. He must've saw stuff on the books that he didn't like and was trying to balance out the balance sheets. And we got caught in that particular moment. If we were a day or week earlier, we would have been in the clear, but we were Unfortunately, not that that lucky. How did you turn this all around? What actions did you take? What was your mindset and how long did it take? It still happens. You know, I mean, it it took from that moment to move forward. We had to start coming up with like principles. And I remember Nicole and I sitting down and we're like, we're going to create structured principles around this. And one of those principles was if you're down, then I have to be up. If I'm down, then you have to be up. And then we were like, well, what if both of us are down? We're like, one of us has to figure it out. Which one is more down than the other? Then you have to be up. That support and that willing to fight, that commitment, that determination can really change your perspective when both of you are down and someone has to be up. We also define the bedroom. The bedroom is no longer the bedroom and the boardroom. No more computers in the, in the bedroom. No more biz talk. Let's keep our life and the business separate so that we can maintain a healthy marriage and still try to figure out how to climb out of this. She was a pro at figuring out how to rob Peter to pay Paul. I mean, the, the stuff that she was doing with the credit cards and trying to like get everything into like a zero balance credit card and then try to pay it off before the interest rates would kick in and all the tricks and the trade. She was a pro, but it, it was oh, so heavy to see her with papers writing down because I'm not good at that stuff. She was great at that stuff. And just to see her like now manage like Christopher and manage the household and manage this business and then also try to get us out of debt while I'm out there trying to fight tooth and nail for 200 bucks here, 300 bucks there. I mean, I'm literally taking change out of our house and putting it into a Coinstar machine at the grocery store to get gas money. And at this point, your goal is a talk show for yourself. At that point, our goal was survival. Like it felt like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It felt like we were at that bottom rung of, oh my gosh, 
you know, the house might get pulled if we don't pay attention. Like things could get really bad really quick if we aren't really smart about the next set of steps. But the dream was that we we always saw Oprah as like the quintessential talk show host that could really break through. And when we looked at Phil Donahue, and, and I'm throwing some old school names in there, but these are the people that we studied. I studied Johnny Carson. I studied Phil Donahue. I studied Ricky Lake. I studied Sally Jesse Raphael, Mont- Montel Williams. Like, these are the people that I had seen and had studied. And one day she saw me interviewing on one of my little side hustles. She saw me interviewing Stedman Graham. She came to this little thing that I had. And I'm interviewing Stedman Graham and Stedman says, I don't know what it is about you, but there's something special about you as it relates to this thing and you should stick with it. And I I was just like, oh, that's so cool Stedman said that. I was like, you know, yo, talk to Oprah, make something happen, right? But of course that didn't happen. But Nicole's on the sideline, she hears that. She's like, I got it. I think what we're going to do is we're going to create the talk show for you that's like the Oprah for the younger generation. How, how can we start to build that? And that was the dream at, at that time. But we didn't have anything. Like, we just had this dream. Like, who are we? We're living in Baltimore. We're like broke as hell. And that's the dream. How many years was this rough for you and your wife? Four. It felt longer, but f- four years. And then what is the thing that gets you out of debt and getting income coming in? You know, it's one, uh, it's one of those things where speaking engagements was not on my radar, but we were getting calls to actually speak at places. How did people know to call you? Because my side hustle was that I was still doing stuff in the local Baltimore market for free. So I was on a radio station and a TV station doing these mini four or five minute segments every week for free. Like I'm still doing these segments. I'm still making, trying to make these things happen. And so that exposure, someone said, Hey, we should give this guy, let him come and speak to us about technology. And it just happened to be to a group of financial executives that were all connected to other financial conferences. And so basically through that one connection, I ended up getting like maybe four or five other speaking engagements. One that actually sent me to Hawaii for like the million dollar round table. So here I am like broke, but no one really knows. And I'm like hanging around these multimillionaires telling them how they could use technology to build their portfolios. It's the juxtaposition is just, it's insane. It reminds me of my dad here. Here he is struggling, trying to like get a better life for us. And he's got to go and visit these people as his clients that are working in these environments he wants us to live in. The perception is such a powerful thing. So you're working for free, but people are watching these segments probably think you're, you're definitely getting compensated and you have this glamorous life. And then at what point do you say to yourself, we're going to film a, a pilot presentation and can, I still can't believe this actually happened, but, but set everything up. <laughs> so at a certain point, we're going around trying to pitch the idea that we would like to do this show. And um, we start getting enough feedback where people are just like, okay, at this point I am doing stuff on the Today Show. So, you know, I, let me set that up. We are still doing local stuff and somehow or another, some. One of the producers, I think it was Rachel Ray's producer, found a clip and was like, hey, we want you to come in and talk about technology. So we go in and do this, do this segment at the Rachel Ray studio. I'm like, whoa, this is awesome. So I do that. From that, a couple months later or maybe even sooner, someone from the Today Show is like, hey, we saw you on this thing. Would you like to come in? We want you to do a tech segment. I just want to mention, at this point still, you're not getting paid for either of those. <laughs> Nothing. I'm not getting 
So I saw your TV credits, and I know that you went on the Today Show. You've been on the Today Show a lot. I heard you're going to be on in two weeks. So was your plan uh, in the beginning of doing local, was it just to kind of master local, and then you had maybe uh, bigger dreams and ambitions? So initially, great question. Initially, it was like go in local because I could pitch it and get access to it and learn. Again, remember, I didn't get trained in college. What, what happened to my whole college and my whole experience? Like, so I had to learn. So I created like this slide. I was like, all right, I'm going to go pitch this idea. I'm going to do it for free. I'm going to talk to the GM and I'm going to do a tech segment every Thursday. And they're like, okay, for free? And I'm like, yeah. So I go in every Thursday morning before I would go to work. I would go to this tech segment, do it. So I was building, building, building locally. Also had a local radio show at the same time, still doing that. So the whole idea, though, was always to try to figure out how to to go national. I thought it was going to be easy. I thought when I was at the local ABC affiliate, I remember asking some of the, the, the key talent and anchors there, and I'm like, so uh, how do I get to Good Morning America? And they're looking at me, they're in Baltimore station, and they're like, I don't know. And I'm like, wait, so none of you, the weather person, nobody, sports, no one wants to go to like a bigger station? And it's like, we don't have any connections to Good Morning America. And I'm like, I'm at ABC. Can't someone make a phone call and help me get into Good Morning America? Like, that, I thought it was going to be so easy. So we decided that we had to start figuring out how to target even more national opportunities. And that's when we, back then, were focusing on CNN. And um, we were watching a lot of CNN at the time and uh, HLN at the time. And we locked in on this weekend edition that had uh, TJ Holmes um, was, like, the main anchor. And we were like, man, we, sh- we should go after that. We should go after CNN. So the, the short story is I'm actually in North Carolina at a speaking engagement and there is an event that's happening in Miami, Florida for the National Association of Black Journalists. TJ is speaking at this event. So happens that it turns out that he was moderating a panel that was talking about technology. The woman that was setting up the panel was like, hey, we got another slot. Would you like to be in on this panel? I'm like, what? You don't even understand what this means right now. Like the universe is coming to conspire to help me. And so I'm like, yeah, I want to be on the panel. Problem was I was in North, I was in North Carolina at a speaking engagement that had me for three days. So I was an MC. So I had to do the intro to the conference middle. And then I had to do the evening gala. The problem was in between that, I would have to try to figure out how to fly to Florida, do the thing, meet TJ, hope to meet TJ, hope he likes me and then fly back to North Carolina without the client even knowing I was gone. So, and we only had 79 bucks left in our account. So I had to buy, like, the ticket off of that. And Nicole, I vividly remember being in the hotel room. She's like, you sure you want to go through with this? And I'm like, yeah. And she's like, do not miss that plane getting back here because I don't know what I'm going to tell the client if you're not back here. And I'm like, okay. I fly to Miami. I do the thing. I, I think I'm on fire on this panel. I'm seeing the head nods from the audience. And then a friend of mine that's in the back of the room comes to me, and she goes, I don't think TJ likes you. And I'm like, out of nowhere, she says this. She has no idea what our plans were, what I just went through, the 79 bucks. She knows nothing. And she goes, I don't think TJ, I'm like, why would you say that? Every time you talked, he made some funny faces. And I was like, oh no. He beelines to me and he says, stay right here. I don't want you to move. Where did you come from? I'm going to get my EP. I'll be right back. Mind you, I have my roller bag with me in this at the panel. Like I got an hour before I got to get to back to the airport and get this flight. So the short story ends that he loved me and the EP comes and says, TJ says, I need to talk to you. Blah, 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 blah. Tanisha was her name. And they were like, we'll try you out. 
you know, if you can pitch me some ideas on health and tech, we'll try you out, see what you can do. It was like this very dismissive type of thing. So then I go and do that for free and I try it out on week one and they're like, okay, that was amazing. What else you got? And I'm like, oh my God, I'm on CNN and they're asking me what else I got. And we're still got no money, no nothing. And so, so that's all of that was what was building that national hit then really started getting the recognition for us to get other opportunities. And then Rachel Ray's producer calls and we get an opportunity with Rachel Ray and then the Today Show calls and we get an opportunity with Today. When you do these national shows, you're in Maryland, you're living in Maryland, are they paying your travel or are you actually losing money to go there? Mark, if I only knew what so many of your people knew that were so smart, I had no idea people would pay for travel. I had no idea people would pay for it to put you up. I mean, and this is the time, this is the time where black car service was like, it didn't matter who you were as a guest. You get a black car or we'll get your train ticket. You get an overnight stay. Like every, that expense budget was there. I had no idea. I was doing this for free for almost a year before another New Yorker finally said, hey, how come there's no black car picking you up? And I was like, wait, what do you mean? I, was, I thought that was only like for Al Roker. <laughs> like, you know, I can get one of those too. And so at that point I realized, oh my gosh, yeah, we need to start asking because they'll probably just let me do this as long as for free forever. And so we finally asked. And it got to a point where multiple networks then were actually wanting to do a contract with me. And the Today Show wanted to do a contract, which was unheard of because they just usually give you the exposure as a, as a guest or an expert. So I became a contributor. But CNN also wanted to do a contract. And then Today Show was like, well, you can't do CNN because we did it exclusivity. You know how this business works. And so we had to get the lawyers to wait, say, like, wait, that's cable. This is broadcast. That's morning TV. He's doing more like primetime on CNN. That, like, can't we make this work? And so it was really interesting to see us kind of finagle these disparate opportunities to start to create an income uh, for us. And so those contracts, along with now working with brands, was starting to create income for us. At the same time, you're going on TV, but your dream is I, this talk show. I mean, it's, it's clear in your mind. It's clear in, in Nicole's mind. And I mentioned the Rachel Ray set. How does this happen? Just set everything up. And I, I don't even know if I have the whole version, but when I, when I heard the Cliff Note version, I, again, I couldn't believe it. So we needed to produce a pilot for the concept of the Never Settle show. We didn't feel like we needed to because I've been on the Today Show and I've been doing this for a while and we thought we had enough credibility. But there were people that were just like, well, we need to see your idea. And we had pitched other shows prior to this um, for other ideas that just didn't go anywhere and didn't happen. So at this point, we were like, really? We're going to pay for a pilot? So then we're like, okay, if we're going to pay for a pilot, people need to see me in the environment that we're trying to be in. And so that's where we were like, I wonder if we can get like a studio in New York that host talk shows so that we could use a talk show set and then put me in that scenario so people can visualize, oh, I can see him in this space. And I think it's really important, whatever you're trying to push out there for people that you can demonstrate to them that even if you're not doing it already, that you can at least pretend show in some way that you can exist in that environment so that they can see a clearer picture. Your vision is very vivid, but a lot of people may need more instruments and more parts and more pieces to understand that picture. We found out we need to do a pilot. So I'm like, all right, we call around Chelsea studios has Rachel Ray set. And they were like one of the sets that was available. And so the guy's like, yeah, we can give you like an hour in here and um, for you to like shoot your stuff or like two hours, I think was the window. And he's like, it's going to cost you $20,000. <laughs> now $20,000. Does that include the crew? 
No, I mean, which crew? What what crew? Like uh, people filming, camera people, oh, audio. Oh, Mark, bless your heart. No, man. No. So here's that's the space. That is basically the cost of the studio space. We then have to find out about the business. And we're like, how are we going to get people to sit in the seats? Then we find out, like, oh, there's these companies that you can hire that will pay people. Oh, what do you want? What age bracket do you want? You know, what gender do you want? What do you want them to wear? Da, da, da. And so we were like, what is this whole other sub-industry that's going on? Like, oh, so that's how Letterman and everyone was filling these seats every single night. Like, they had these companies that they would have these contracts with. So we had to pay for that. And... We, we, we shot this whole pilot with one camera. My friend, Roy Heisler, this dude is an amazing cinematographer, but he put his heart and soul behind our vision. And it's one camera. I got a studio of, I don't know, 40 or so people that are all paid to be there with the exception of maybe 10 people that, you know, found out about it and wanted to be there. And I'm like doing a whole bit. And I have to move from like being up on the steps and I'm like doing the whole Oprah thing with the, my mic and I'm asking the guest the question and they're, we're going back and forth. And then we had to like slice and splice and edit this all together. I mean, even my run out, I come running out of the back and there's like blue drape because Rachel's stuff couldn't be seen in our pilot. So I couldn't even use her furniture and her set really. It, it was all blocked off with blue drape. It was amazing what we were able to do with absolutely nothing to try to pull off simulating this guy can manage hosting a daily talk show. And when you edited this together, how did it look? Were you happy with it? Oh, I was ecstatic. I was because I, I, I was like, this is it. I was like, this you told us to prove it. This is it. We've done it. You've you've asked. We've done it. And at this point, do you have an agent or managers that can kind of be somewhat aggressive? Nope. Okay, so no representation. You're knocking on the door, I'm guessing, to all the major networks, maybe syndicators. I, I'm not re- really sure. Uh, is, am I correct on that? And what, what did they say? So, you know, you go to production companies or you go to places and you try to piss the idea. And, you know, I remember the one guy was just like, um, okay, now that you've proved that you can, you know, you can host this, you know, how do you know people are going to have an appetite to watch this every single day? It was like, wait. Is this, is this a, it was like a question after question after question. It was always a challenge. It's like, wait, I just fulfilled. Do you know what it took me to fulfill this challenge that you presented to me? Now you're trying to come at me with other challenges. It's like, when does this end? What, what, at what point is enough enough? At what point have we proven that we can deliver? And so I'm like, all right, leave that meeting, go to another meeting. And I'll go to one meeting. And she said to me, she was like, and this woman could have, if, if she loved it, I would have been off and running. This woman has kinged many people along the way. Um, and she goes, uh, people don't want to write things down anymore. They just want entertainment. And that really hit me really hard in the gut to basically say no one wants quality, educational, or intelligent information. They just want to be fed you know, entertainment. And we're in the middle of reality TV now trying to pitch this more highbrow, you can make your life happen, you can pursue your passion, here's the advice, here are the tips, let's really get smart and let's really talk about everything ranging from how neuroscience plays into how you think and how you can make moves to uh, anxiety and fear and procrastination and determination and all these things. And they were just like, yeah, the Oprah days are over. And when I heard that, 
we just modeled everything around Oprah of what we wanted to kind of do for the new generation. And I'm hearing, yeah, the Oprah days are over. No one wants to do that. So at, at one point when you, you do the Rachel Ray presentation, how many years have you been aggressively trying Pitching? to pitch this? Two. So two, because I saw an interview on YouTube from 2014, and you're talking about you have this idea, and it's been it's it's really really hard. So you're working at two with the Rachel Ray, and then how do you finally get this to move forward with the Never Settle show? And how many years did it take, and how did all did it all move forward? So after the two years of pitching, I remember sitting in the kitchen, and Nicole and I just said, "Look, you know, we can continue to try to do syndicators. We can try to go and get more meetings. Mario, maybe we need to get more meetings, or can we just do this ourselves? And what will that take?" And at that point, I think we were so tired with the the fighting for the vision that we were just like, you know, oftentimes I say you can spend a lot of time trying to convince someone else of your idea, or you can just go and do it yourself. Like use that energy. Just to, so that's where we went. We, we were like, okay, so then what we needed to do is first find a space. So I call Chelsea again. I'm like, how much is a studio? And so they're like, well, what do you want to do? And I'm like, well, you know, maybe three, maybe four camera shoot at most, 40 people in studio, blah, blah. She spits back a proposal. It's $325,000. And I'm like, what? At this point, you and Nicole are still funding everything yourselves? Everything. Yeah, we didn't. Yeah, I mean, I mean, we have speaking deals. We have, you know, a, a contract with CNN and, and uh, Today Show, but we're funding everything for this project all on our own. And so at that point, we actually, I say, you know what? I wonder if we can find a, 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 a different place where we could actually host a show where we don't have to pay. And this kind of gets into these, this idea that I have of like illogical combinations, finding things that don't normally seem to make sense to try to create something that's new. So I called tech companies and, and I would call companies that knew me because I was in the tech space. And I was like, can we use your lobby to host a show? <laughs> and they were like, what? And I'm like, look, we'll give your product some mention on the show. That's the barter. We, we would love to come in once a week on Wednesday and shoot our show with a live studio audience in your lobby. So they were like, this sounds insane. I put together a deck and everything. And sure enough, Canary, the web camera company that's all about security, was like, yeah, we'll give this a shot. How many no's did you get before a yes? I lost count. Yeah, I lost. I stopped counting. You know what? I actually stopped counting. This is, it was like debilitating to just count. So you just, you, at a certain point, that's when we just got to the point of like, how, what is it going to take? Let's just figure it out. So then we line up credit cards to figure out how much is it going to cost for us to do this. And Nicole literally has, and we were blessed to be in a situation, but we literally had like eight credit cards sitting on the table trying to figure out how we're going to pay for crew, space, marketing, anything to make this show work. And at this point, you have the credibility, which is probably one of the most important things. Today's show, Steve Harvey, Rachel Ray. You have your own radio show at Sirius XM. It's so true. I'm holding my head down because... When you're an underdog, you're really counted out. And I don't want people, you know, the title of your podcast is, is Persistence 360, right? Like, it's Persistence 360. Persistence, what does that really mean? It really means, you know, determination. Well, what is what's determination? Determination is staying committed to doing something even when you don't feel like doing it. And when I think about persistence and what you give everybody, that's the only thing I feel like that we had that kept pushing us because you get so beat down that you either give up on the vision 
or you allow the naysayers or your own self-critic to beat you down enough that you then settle or you become complacent. And that's going to breed regret later if you don't take the risk or do the chance. So to get to a point where we're like, we're going to get a tech company's lobby. We're going to bring in a set. Like we literally had people like cutting two by fours to make a wall so we could put a screen on this thing. It looked like a clubhouse. It literally looked like a clubhouse. And it was the most, you couldn't tell me anything about this set. The the way we worked to get screens in there and the deals that we had to cut to try to get people to help support us. And then Al Roker and Roker Media and his company was super supportive in getting us the crew to help staff it. and, And they worked with us. And it was just like all these pieces were aligning to try to see like, can Rocky end up beating Mr. T? Like, can, can the underdog actually make it? Was Al Roker Productions, was, were they putting any money behind it? No money, but they put crew and they put talent and they put a lot of energy and, and obviously his name behind it, which meant a lot. Yeah, that's absolutely huge. So you're, you're doing these in the lobby, and what happens next? We're doing these in the lobby. We get six, uh, get a six-episode run. So here's the really crazy thing. Every single Wednesday, we got to come in, pull the set from out from where we hide it, and put it into this lobby, open up the chairs, put the chairs out. Look, there was no jib. There, these are terms for, like, you know, TV people. These are, like, three cameras. Wires are everywhere. They aren't even cordless cameras. Like, people could trip over. Over this stuff. It was just like ridiculous what the scene was. And then every night at, at the end of the show, we had to break it down. We had PAs, but we had to break it down. And I'll never forget at the end of that sixth episode when it was time to actually pack up, I'm renting a U-Haul truck out of New York and myself, Nicole, Shy, and a couple of other people were there and we're packing up. We're packing up signage. We're packing up carpets. We're packing up step and repeats. And I'm putting it, I'm putting it into a U. I'm just packing up my set, putting it into a U-Haul. And I just remember recording this video saying, the next season, I'm not doing this. I'm glad I'm doing it, but the next season, I'm not doing this. It was painful. We, fi- we self-financed 80% of that. And thank goodness for FedEx office, they came in and really pushed us over the edge. Like, but that other 20%, we wouldn't have been able to do it. But we self-financed. And so we went back in. We just got out of debt not too many years ago. We went back into massive debt to try this thing. At that point with six episodes, what was the show called? The Never Settle Show. So it, it was that. So, But you're losing all this money. How do you bounce back from that? You you're, don't have any money. Action creates reaction. Scientific proven law. Action physics. Action creates reaction. It is very important for you to take action. Because we took those steps to do six episodes, and thank you, Damon John, for jumping in on the sixth one that really you know helped to give us a little elevated push there. Um, when we finished, we get a phone call. Uh, I don't remember exact time frame, but a few weeks after, I get a phone call from an old social media producer that used to work at CNN and HLN. She's like, hey, I'm over at NASDAQ. We're looking at doing some stuff on Facebook. We saw your show, really interactive. We love the social components because your show is super engaging and interactive. It wasn't just a regular talk show. Our key was we wanted it to be crowd-produced. So we were, we were inviting the audience into our editorial meetings. They would help us pick guests, pick topics. We were trying to change everything a talk show was about. We were like, we're the anti-talk show. We're not going to tell you. We're not going to feed you what we think you want. You're going to tell us what you need 
need, and then we're going to deliver it for you. Didn't you have a vision of the type of guest you wanted in the audience? They decided, no, we don't want this type of guest. Yeah. <laughs> so if, if when you go to these things and you're like, you're going to crowdsource it or crowd produce it, you do have like a set idea on the things you want to have happen. And then you involve the crowd and that means opinions. And then you go, oh, Oh, that's what you want? It, but it was, we were in such a sponge mode that it didn't affect us too much with what we already had. And we weren't, we understand attachment and not living by attachment. We know to let things kind of happen and you can't control outcomes. You can only control your process. Before you launched those six episodes, I read something or I saw a video. You're saying that you needed confidence. You need confidence. You stand in front of the mirror. That's that inner critic can work against you. So before the launch, you, you made one big decision, which it was about your teeth. Oh, yeah. I, you know, because that was when I had an opportunity to, you know, you're looking at yourself in the mirror and you're trying to just figure out, like, how do I be my most confident self? And any, anybody that looks in the mirror deals with this, whether it's a weight issue or you're wearing glasses or your teeth need adjusting. So, yeah, I remember, like, uh, having Invisalign on my teeth and trying to like get them straightened out. But I I was more worried about actually, you know what I was most panicked about? I was most panicked about actually dying before the first episode. Because you just, it was like 24 seven. No, because I was worried that we had worked so hard and we're actually about to have this happen. And we now have a date. And if I die before anyone gets to see this vision unfold, that's going to be like the worst thing ever. I mean, I remember being at home like, I don't want to leave the house. I just didn't even want chance to happen. Like I would have these thoughts to myself like, I don't want to go anywhere because I don't want to die before the first episode because I believed, we believed so much in what we were trying to produce. I was like, I have to stay alive so people can see this dream. They can see this vision. To get back to your teeth, just the fact that you're able to talk people into doing things, were you able to get a free care for your teeth? I was. <laughs> I knew it. I was wondering if that's, yeah, I did. I was, you know, because I was like, all right, Invisalign, I'll, um, I'll mention you. I'll hook you up in some way. Look, bartering is the best thing you can do when you don't have any money. Like figure, but here's the key. You really have to understand what do they need. It, you know what you want. I often tell people like, oh, you shouldn't have a personal agenda. That's not true. Everyone has a personal agenda. You have a personal agenda with this podcast, no matter what. The key is, can your personal agenda bring value to other people? And if you allow that to drive how you do barters or how you do partnerships, then everybody truly wins. It's not just once I know what I need to gain, but what what can I do to really help you gain? And if I can solve that, I'm going to be your best friend and everybody wins. So you're doing the show from the NASDAQ. Are they covering your cost? Are you getting compensated? No. What they offered was production. So they were like, hey, can you bring the show to our studio? They had cameras. They had um, a control room. Uh, you know, our control room back in at the tech company was in a closet. The audience could hear the director yelling because the walls were paper thin. So uh, they had production for us that we could do. And then they wanted to see what this would be like at NASDAQ and w- if this would work. So we ended up doing five episodes there that everyone loved and it did well and Clearly, we were no longer in a tech company's lobby. We were in a real studio. It's ground floor level with big windows. CNBC shoots their morning show called Squawk Box out of that same studio. So we were in primetime big leagues. I just want to make sure with the Rachel Ray, when you you did that, you did the pilot, all no's, every single one were no's. And how many did you, how many production companies did you approach? 
Uh, I mean, I think from all the pilots that we produced and then going to conferences and pitching and, you know, going to things like Nappy, which is like, you know, the television programming executives thing in Florida and going to the screen scene and all these different venues. I mean, it, it, it had to have hit 30. So you get Easy. all these notes. When you're at the NASDAQ, how do you get FedEx? Do you, are you getting sponsors yourself? <laughs> we are getting sponsors ourselves. Um, I ended up having to do in our business in the media something called an SMT. So eBay calls me. eBay says, hey, we want to fly you to Dallas to do a social media tour. I mean, a um, satellite media tour. So that means I'm going to stand in the TV studio from like 8 a.m. to like 12 noon. And I'm going to go on from one location, multiple stations across the country on like 15 minute intervals talking about a particular product. I don't like to do a lot of these things because I don't want to be like a shill. So I want to make sure that I'm working for brands that I like their product or the service. So eBay says, hey, we're doing this partnership with FedEx Office where you can bring your eBay stuff that you want to eBay, bring it into FedEx Office. They'll list it for you. They'll take care of all the work. They'll even do the shipping. It was a brilliant idea for the two of them, the partner. So I'm like, all right, I'll do this. I get to Dallas and I find out, no one told me this, that the CEO is also going to be at this SMT. And I'm like, wait, what? I find out this like literally the night before. So now I'm scrambling. So I like start writing up a deck. I start putting together my pitch. I find, ironically, I find a FedEx that's office that's in the same hotel I'm in. I print the stuff off on FedEx stuff. I put it in FedEx packaging. I don't remove any stickers. I leave all the FedEx stickers. The guy was like, you want me to take the barcodes off? I'm like, nope, leave all the FedEx signage on the, on the envelopes. Because my plan was I'm going to present FedEx office with FedEx stuff, my deck and my pitch. And that's exactly what happened. What was this person's reaction that the head of, of FedEx? Uh, they were like, first off, you really do use our products. And I was like, actually, I really do use your product. Not just for this one time. I really do use your products. Secondly, he said, uh, the way you are going about presenting the show and how it can help people, but also solve some of the things that we want in terms of exposure for our brand is brilliant. And so, and I did a ton of research on him and a ton of research on some of the decisions that he made. And he was paying, I could tell he was paying attention to the fact that I was spitting back some of this research because from that it was, and then he got to see me actually work because we were doing the SMT together. And so from that point, they were kind of like, yeah, why don't you come and pitch us this, uh, you know, in a couple of weeks to see if it could really happen. You get FedEx on board. Just to, to go back, when you did your first six initial shows, where did they air? They aired on Facebook. They aired on Facebook. So we did a partnership with Entrepreneur Magazine. Entrepreneur Magazine um, was our distribution partner, if you want to call it that. And so they liked the idea of the show and they were like, hey, we'll put it on the Entrepreneur website as well as on, on their Facebook page. So that's, that was the start. When you're doing the NASDAQ shows, that was Facebook as well? Yeah, and then when we did NASDAQ, that was actually when Facebook had become Facebook, well, not become, but when they added Facebook Watch. So we were like one of the first Facebook Watch shows to actually be put out there. You gave this incredible advice. I was either reading, a, again, an article or saw a video. The one thing you said is you had your network in place before you were successful. This is referring to treating people beautifully along your journey is the number one right thing to do as a human being. But when you are on your own or trying to make it on your own for an idea or a passion that you have, treating people along the way of your journey the way you would want to be treated 
is how you build your network before you need it. Showing proof of your work, your ethics, your integrity, and then caring about other human beings when it was time for people to care about me and, and those that were in positions that could do something, that's when it started. Like Anna calling me saying, hey, we saw your show. She didn't have to do that, but she saw the work ethic, the integrity, and we worked years ago, and I've always treated her right. She always saw me treat others right. And so that's building your network before you need it. It's very important to care about what other people need even when you don't need something. Before you use your network, it's a good idea almost always to actually show something, like I've been doing the work, rather than somebody just going. I think some people will just sit down with somebody or a a bunch of people before they even have done anything, put something on paper. And this is also why I'm big on presentation decks. I mean, I would make a presentation for everything. I remember working at the Today Show and I said, you know, I want to be, I think we could be doing something with people out on the plaza. Like I was trying to carve a niche for me. And I said, I think we could be doing more with the people that are out on the plaza. They could, we could, there could be more rah-rah moments while the anchors are inside. They're just outside in the cold. We could be doing stuff with them. And I laid out this whole presentation. So every, every single place that I was at, I think it's very important that when you're building a network that you're showing some kind of action. Look, starts don't have to be pretty. In fact, I don't know any start that is pretty. Listen to our story. We were in a tech company's lobby. By all standards, it wasn't pretty. But look at what Uber started. Do you know how Uber really started? You would actually call Uber. There was no app. You called Uber, and then Uber, you would actually talk to a person, and then they would call a black car company, and then they would come and pick you up at where you were. And they didn't have an Airbnb was you renting uh, air mattresses, not people's entire homes. You would rent an air mattress. So the starts aren't pretty. So to your point, you have to take action to get reaction. You have to have a clarity of your vision, but you have to take action. Another thing I liked you talking about was family versus business. And that's something I normally don't hear about. Oh, because you have to, the, because the idea is that, you know, if you are going solo or if you're doing your own thing, that you're all in on that and that's your only focus. And that's only your mindset is focused on that so much so that other areas of your life suffer. For me, in order order for me, when people say, Mario, what's success to you? That is harmony. Harmony is success to me. And what that means is I'm working hard on my marriage. I I try to remember we're all human. You're going to slip, but I try to remember like, Hey, what can we, what could I be doing better? Um, like I literally just told my wife last night, I was just like, I, we, I need to change some things up. I need to romance you. I need to, we need to go out. I need to go to dinner and we need to like go to like being mindful about that. How can I be a great dad? And I'm not going to be a great dad a hundred percent of the time. It's not possible, but how can I be a great dad and reminding myself that? So having that balance and that harmony is very, very important because when you push, something is going to be let, let go a little bit. Something's going to have to give. But I think if you are extremely mindful about that and if you're extremely present, I think that's the biggest thing that I've learned is you can be in one space for a short amount of time and be way more present than you can be with someone for a long amount of time and not be there. Because in this, it was surprising me. You were a big advocate on getting the sleep. It, that helps you be present because I just, in my head, I was like, is Mario sleeping? <laughs> and that, and this, is, this is what's so beautiful about this because, so no, I think, you know, the fallacy of the big myth is that 
you don't get any rest. You don't take care of your health. You don't eat right. You just have to hustle, hustle, hustle and grind, grind, grind. Like we wear this thing as a badge of honor. And that is absolutely the opposite way of being effective. You need eight hours of sleep. It's been proven. Like I don't have to do this. Go read a science, science study. If you don't want to believe it, that's on you. I have tried to figure out how to maintain as much balance and presence as much as possible. Sleeping is key. So um, I've, we've invested in a sleep number bed just to get the best possible sleep we can actually get. Um, meditating is, is a part of the routine. Taking naps is a part of routine. If I dig into my backpack right now, do you want me to dig into this? Yes, let's dig into Mario Armstrong's backpack. You're going to see. I'll let, you, I'll let you look at this. These are uh, eye treatments for like anti-dark circle. Um, and uh, I put these on my eyes. There's cucumber. Put them on my eyes. Chill out for 10 minutes and you feel refreshed. Meditate for 10 minutes. You feel refreshed. This is how I'm able to get more energy, more hours. People are like, yo, is he on caffeine? No, no caffeine's in the body at all. None. I can't even drink it. I got IBS and a bunch of other issues. Can't do it. What is that called? What is so if people are interested? Um, it's a great question. This is called yes to cucumbers. <laughs> it's incredible sometimes where it's like the little things people wouldn't wouldn't think about. Growing up, did you have this persistence, this perseverance? Was it wired in you? Uh, trying was wired in me. Persistence is above trying. Trying is when you, you're curious. I would say what's wired in me is curiosity. Continuing to want to learn, continuing to want to try, and then understanding at a certain point when a coach told me, you know why you fail, right? You know why we lost. And I was like, no, why? And he's like, well, we lost so we can learn. I was like, oh, boom. So no more failure is not in my dictionary anymore. Like you don't hear me and the team talk about failure. The only way you fail is if you do not try. So if there was anything that was instilled in me was like that, the only way you fail is if you do not try. And then if you don't learn from how you failed, maybe that's how you failed as well. But you're either going to get the result you're looking for or you're going to learn from what didn't happen. And I think that's what was wired in me. Besides yourself, whose persistence inspires you? I mean, right off the bat, I got to go to dad, uh, dad and mom, just watching that duo and that team be as strong as possible through all the adversity and dealing with bankruptcy. And, you know, I remember I remember when my dad's car wouldn't start and how he would have to, like, pop the hood and get it to work. And just I, I, they they inspire me the most. But then I would say outside of them, people like uh, The Rock inspire me. Uh, people like Issa Rae inspire me. Um, people like Kevin Hart inspire me. There, there's, there's so many. Will Smith. I mean, Oprah. I could, I could go on and on for the list of how many people have really done amazing things that are super inspiring. Often the power of asking. I talk about the power of, of asking. And in one interview, you talked about asking and you said it's how you ask. Can you elaborate? Like one of the other people that inspire me about this question that you asked is Ellen Pompeo because of how she um, – like had to learn how to ask. And I only remember this because I remember reading her story and she's got this name of the show was after her. She's a star character, but she's not getting equal pay. And she didn't even really know how to ask until she talked to Shonda Rhimes. And Shonda was like, what do you really want to do? What do you want? And so this conversation turned into like a real ask. And so when I feel like 
you know, when we talk about the ask and making the ask, I like this idea of like doing it in threes, that you ask for three things, the low hanging fruit, middle of the road, and your ultimate dream ask. Don't ever ask a person for like one thing. Always ask in threes. You want to increase the odds of people saying yes to one of those three. And I remember doing this with like uh, Al and some other and, and like Matt and other people. And I remember one time writing up a letter. This is years ago, writing up a letter. And, and, I, and I did this for even for Spike Lee. I bumped into Spike Lee, never met him before. I, I know I'm going to meet him. I know he's going to be on this panel that I'm moderating. But I write, I write a type up a letter. And in the letter, I put in three asks. And the three asks were, uh, one was, will you make, w- yeah, would you make my new season opening? Like I was wondering if he would shoot that. Or would he assign like a film student prodigy of his? Uh, the second was, um, would he be a guest on the show? And then the third one was, would he be my, would he allow me to, would he be a mentor? And I got very specific. You have to be very specific. Would you give me 15 minutes every three months to be my mentor? And he, he looked at this letter and he's like, you really wrote this letter? Like right now I'm gonna read this right now. So the good news is we're going to get him on the show, but no mentorship. And I don't think I'm going to company to do the opening, but we're going to get him on the show. (laughs) One out of three. I mean, for someone like Spike Lee, that that's all you need. That's all you need. And that's why I say to always try to increase your odds. And that's why the power of ask is so important because people need to know what you need. There are so many humans that want to help, but we're so shy and not wanting to reveal for lack of being not being perfect or we're a perfectionist or we need to wait. People need to know what you need help with. The most two most important things you could ever do is understand how you could bring value to someone else and how you could ask for what you need. When did the glasses become a thing? Because I love your glasses. You have you wear different color glasses. They're so distinct. I'm guessing that was a conscious decision that I'm going to make myself stand out. Not like it doesn't it doesn't overshadow who you are, but it's the small small thing. But when when did you get this idea and and how did you execute it? All right, I'm going to date myself a little bit, but when you look at Larry King and you're like Yo, suspenders every single time, different colors, different patterns, different suspenders, suspenders, suspenders. Yeah, guys, we can't, we don't have that much to work with. What do we have to work with? Like, am I going to change my hair color? And my wife wasn't going for that. I wanted to do that, by the way. She didn't go for it. So glasses became, I had to wear them. And I was like, wait, if I got to wear these things anyway, let me get ones that really exude my personality? How can, how can they be a reflection of me? And I think this is important for anybody that's trying to figure out how do you stand out in an authentic way? Find something that you have to do anyway and then infuse it with your personality. Don't be bashful about it. Don't be ashamed. If I had to listen to my dad or my brother tell me what I should or shouldn't wear every time I wore it, I wouldn't be wearing crazy looking glasses. Um, but you have to do what which showcases your personality in the most realist, authentic way to you. What is your advice for someone who has a dream, but they're having trouble being persistent? They might have stopped after the fourth obstacle, maybe the fifth obstacle. What would you say to them? You have to establish a framework that gives you the consistent confidence 
and the ability to continue momentum. So what I mean by that is we do, I do a reflection practice with our family. So every Sunday we reflect on the week. What are three wins? We go around the table. doesn't matter what the wins were. It could be as small as I had a great tasting sandwich on Wednesday for lunch, or it could be I closed a deal and we're going to be able to do this thing. Um, the fact that you go through a reflection process every single week to only focus on your wins forces you to find what has worked and what is working. It reminds you of the progress, even if it's so small. The idea is that the more you find small moments of momentum, the more you start to build the consistency of really being, quote unquote, persistent. So I would say that if you believe in an idea, but it hasn't happened yet, there's probably three steps that I would take. Number one, reflect on the distance traveled. How far have you really come? What are your experiences? Stop beating yourself up. It's, we're wired to know what we haven't done on our to-do list. We're not wired to remember all the great things that we have achieved. Second thing I would do is I would find smaller wins. I would break down my big goal into much smaller tidbits so that I could start to feel success, even if it's very small. Sending an email that was a proposal is a small step. Not getting the deal, sending the email with the proposal. That's a win and believe in that. And then I would say the third thing would be to, and this is probably the the most important piece of it all, is to understand exactly what you're trying to accomplish with very serious clarity understanding what the vision truly is that you have for yourself, and then being completely vulnerable and honest with yourself. This is where I think either egos or the, uh, the lack of being vulnerable with your weaknesses hold many people back from getting to that next level. So really taking stock on what you're great at and really being honest with what you're not and then figuring out how to strengthen those weaknesses by either working with other people or doing it yourself. But being honest is going to help you. I know this doesn't sound like the exact thing, but being honest with yourself is going to help you understand yourself better, increase your self-awareness, and that's going to help you find solutions faster. So much work went into your career in making things happen. This amazing perseverance. What does it feel like when you win an Emmy? <laughs> the greatest feeling on the planet. You feel like you feel like yes, everything that I did or that we did or the team did, every meeting, every script, every moment, every 4 a.m. morning, every time it was freezing cold or you were walking in the rain wondering why why am I pursuing this? Nobody cares, no one's listening. Like all of that comes to you on the inside and it's this huge thing of validation. And I know that as human beings we shouldn't seek validation but it damn sure feels good to get validation how have you not written a book (laughs) um that's a great question i I would just say because i would buy it i'd be at your book signing to congratulate you in front of with all the other people i mean i just i think that what you have to say is just so valuable uh I, i just i just wondering mark you know it's funny i'm sitting here and I try to memorize different things like that I just like to say often. And on this interview, I'm struggling to like even find these quotes that are like normal for me. And so at a certain point, I had to try to like shut that part of my brain off and say, you're, you're searching and you're not being present. Just listen to Mark and his question. So for you to say that 
really blows me back because I'm sitting here thinking, man, I don't think I'm crushing this interview. <laughs> so it's, it, it, but this is a really like, I'm being very vulnerable and very open and very transparent that people, if, if other people are hearing this interview right now and they're like, oh my God, this guy is on fire. To think that I wasn't thinking that I was on fire right now is, is what they're on, is what I'm saying. I don't think I'm on fire right now. I'm just being truthful. This is great to hear that you would say that because I'm so honored that you would say when is your book coming out says so much. It means so much because we are still fighting for our dream to hear someone that's interviewed the caliber of people that you've interviewed and to see the sincerity and how you're saying that just, it really warms my heart because we're still fighting. I mean, we got an Emmy award for the first season of our show that was done in a tech lobby, a New York regional Emmy. I get it, but it was still an Emmy. That was still validation. And this is when the team was just like, you're submitting for Emmys. I was like, yeah, we're going to go for this. I don't know if we're going to hit it, but we're going to go for this. And so to hear that, it really reminds me that we really do have a gift and we really do have something that we have to continue to give. And that um, even on this struggling day, because Nicole and I were having a conversation where we were struggling with some stuff and we were like, all right, now we, we know what we need to do. We know we have to sit in this emotion for a minute. Then we're going to deep breathe. And then we're going to remind ourselves how grateful we are. And then we're going to remind ourselves on the work that we need to do for others. So to hear that really, really warms the heart. Man. I guarantee you that 99.9% of the listeners would be surprised. They are surprised that you, you would say that you were doubting yourself at all during this interview. And even when I arrived here, you, you were telling me you listened to a, a couple of the episodes of the podcast. And what did you say? I said, I think I have to stop listening to your podcast prior to my interview because the amount of quality of content, what they were saying, but more importantly than what they were saying, because obviously that's the output, but people got to understand the input, your ability, your research, your questions, and the allowance that you give to people to explain doesn't happen. And you clearly understand, oh, this isn't about Mark. I mean, this is about Mark wanting to feed stories that he thinks can help really feed other people. By extension, it's going to help you. It's going to do something for you. You have a dream. You have a vision. But by listening to these guests and listening to them, I was doing my research and listening to it. I'm like, man, number one, this guy is like really good. I'm, I've never been more excited to get on a podcast, not for promotional. I wanted to get on this podcast because of your interviewing skill set and the research that I could hear in your questions. But then to hear the answers, I was like, damn it. No one's leaving anything for me to say that's going to be fresh and new. So I was coming into this interview and kind of worried that how am I going to say something that's different from the several other interviews that have already said great stuff. If this was an Olympic competition, you would get a 10. And just for people to know, even as successful as you are, there's still that voice in your head sometimes that, that you, you doubt. I think that that's helpful for the listeners to hear because I'm sure that some of them are going through it. I know I go through it. Everybody does. This is the key. Everybody does. We are not immune to the negative critic. We're not immune to dream killers. We have dream killers that are in our own home, and they don't even mean to be dream killers. You have people that, you have parents that want to protect you, so instead of saying, hey, go for that dream, they'd rather you go for that law degree, or they'd rather you go to school and get that graduate degree, because they want to protect you. So, but they're dream killing in a sense. Then you have people that are just outright don't want to see you successful because of some other reflection that that's doing to them that makes them feel bad about themselves so they don't want you to be successful. Then you have yourself. You have the thoughts and the words that you say. And here's a really interesting thing. 
we spend more time with ourselves than we do hearing stuff from other people. So you hear much more throughout the day what you're talking and saying to yourself more than what other people are saying to you. So if you can, that's something you can control, but you have to have awareness to even know it's happening. So I would, I like to share tips. I always try to get takeaways. So for me, I would say a couple of things for people. Number one, you need to really understand when you're going down this uh, negative cycle. And once you start to get into the negative cycle, you have to know to stop it. And once you can be aware that it's happening, then you can put stops in place. And a way to stop it is kind of like a pattern interrupt. If you've ever heard of this, it's a, a term that's used to kind of shake things up, to do something completely different than what you're doing right now to shift you away from the energy that's happening to you at this moment. So look up pattern interrupts, read about that. My favorite reboot is I retake a shower. I don't care where I am. I will go back home and I will take a shower again. It could be two o'clock in the afternoon and I'll get changed into different clothes. If I really having a bad negative day and I need to reboot, that's my go-to. Other people go to the movies. Other people disassociate different ways. That's mine is a fresh shower. I am so happy that we did this. Where can everybody follow you? Where can, where can they find you? Uh, so I'm all over social at Mario Armstrong. I would love uh, Instagram is is uh, hit me up in the DMs. I love to answer questions directly. So if there's anything I said or you would love to hear more or want help or direction with what you're doing, yeah, Mario Armstrong. Uh, com is our website. Oh, but you should go to the Never Settle show. Go to neversettle.tv or Never Settle Productions. But follow me on Instagram and let's start to build a rapport. I would love to connect with your listeners because these are also some of the people that we would like to help as well. This was absolutely incredible. Thank you so much. Mark, this was by far my favorite podcast interview. And I don't know if you're ever going to allow other people that have been on to like be re-interviewed, but if that ever comes up, I love your research and your style. So I would love to be, I'd love to come back. It's when your book is going to be coming out and I'm going to be pre-ordering it on Amazon. Mark's putting it into existence. This is another key, like actually talking about it, saying you're going to do it, set dates for it, and then reverse engineer your goal setting. I love it. So I need to set a date, reverse engineer this, and then we'll have a date for us to talk about it. Done. (laughs) Mark, you're the man. I loved our chat. Here are some of my personal takeaways for Mario Armstrong. When asking for something huge, always include three separate asks. Mario advises when you present a huge ask, also include a medium and small ask. This will increase your chances of at least getting one yes. When you don't have money, try to barter. The trick is you must be offering something of great value. If you can do that, everybody wins. When his studio was too expensive, Mario called around and found a company that would allow him to film for free in their lobby once a week. It was good advertising for the company, and Mario got what he needed. If this episode helped you or any past episodes, please share them with your friends, family, and on your social platforms. Also, I would love to hear your takeaway on this episode or any previous episodes, either by social media or you can find me on Twitter at mmalkoff and on Instagram at markmalkoff or by emailing me at persistence360 at gmail.com. Also, please subscribe to the podcast, leave a review, and rate it. All three help get the word out about the podcast. 
To read the show notes, go to Persistence360.com. Join me next week for your weekly cup of inspiration. Stay persistent.